0: This is not the media. This
1: is hell.
2: In our new green world, we're going to need more non-fossil fuels like cobalt, copper, lithium, and nickel, which means more extractive industries. And that's a real problem for the Green New Deal. Not only is the mining of these rare metals destructive to what's left of the green world we're trying to protect... But it often leads to worker abuse, child labor, unsafe working conditions, even wars. So what if I told you, I have this great idea, and you can get in on the bottom floor, a bottom so deep it extends all the way to the ocean's floor, and free from the problems of worker abuse without doing any damage to the land, absent any possibility of conflict, without even touching the seafloor itself, We can descend into the murky depths and simply pluck renewable nodules of rare metals to solve all of our energy needs, eliminating our dependence on anything remotely related to fossils. Sounds great, and I bet you want in. All you have to do is believe the technology to do so already exists and ignore the fact that we have no idea what impact that will have on ocean life and the entire oceanic system. And when you consider that in order to do so and follow something called the law of the sea, you have to have a national sponsor to conduct deep sea mining of any kind. And one of the sponsors is the Refugee Detention Center Island Nation of Nauru, where Australia has been diverting asylum seekers since 2012 you got to start having all sorts of questions about deep-sea mining. We'll look into the weird, weird, weird world of deep-sea mining in a few when we talk to writer Rebecca McCarthy, who posted the Baffler magazine article, Deep-sea rush with valuable metals on the ocean floor. Speculators are circling. Rebecca is a freelance writer based in Philadelphia whose work focuses on covering science and the environment. She's also an editorial assistant for Voice of Witness, a nonprofit that illuminates human rights crises through an acclaimed oral history book series. Find out more about Rebecca at her website, rebecca.mccarthy.net. Also on today's This Is Hell, we'll be telling you what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com/slash This Is Hell. We're going to have a, ju- a moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin, and we are going to be announcing. Not just the listener of the week, not just the listener of the month, but very likely the listener of the year. So stay tuned in for that. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth Radio Show live stream podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, please remind us what's this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell for our listeners is uh, what's the
0: smart money play in
2: 2021?
0: What is the smart money play? In 2021
2: The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins Your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want You can check out all of our swag right now by going to thisishell.com And clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute To completely listener-supported This Is Hell without you We got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us, chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. If you're still going to email it to us, just send it to alex at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. During this week's Moment, Jeff swats at the zeitgeist cannibals. Whatever the hell that means. I also have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, this week's question is, what's the smart money play in 2021? Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. On each and every one of our final 12 episodes of 2020, we are revealing... Another title to make our annual list of favorite books to be featured on This Is Hell. We've already named three books this week. The Enchantments of Mammon, How Capitalism Became the Religion of Modernity by Eugene McCarraher, The Government of No One, The Theory and Practice of Anarchism by Ruth Kinna, and A People's Guide to Capitalism, An Introduction to Marxist Economics by Hadass Thier. And... A listener sent us an email saying thank you so much for suggesting A People's Guide to Capitalism by Hadass Thir because they said it makes it so they can actually understand Marx's capital and how they were having so much difficulty, how the book was so boring. And here's a great way to introduce somebody into the writing of Marx's capital, which can be kind of boring. So uh, People's Guide to uh, Capitalism, an introduction to Marxist Economics by Hadass Thier was the last book that we mentioned here on This Is Hell as one of our favorite books of 2020 to be featured here on This Is Hell. And today we add to that list The End of the Mega Machine, A Brief History of a Failing Civilization by writer for print media, television, theater, and opera Fabian Schneidler. You ever wonder why, as the planet burns and a pandemic ravages humanity, the stock market keeps going up? You'd think that as disasters and crises mounted, the market would reflect threats to humanity by trending downward. But nope. Here we are in the ninth month of a global viral pandemic with climate change continuing to go unchecked, except for by our lower fossil fuel consumption, because the pandemic keeps us from going anywhere. And the Dow Jones hits a record high of 30,000 last week. Go figure. Well, what if crises are actually good for the market? What if threats to humanity are good for the Dow? What if we are celebrating the Dow Jones going over 50,000 while eating the last morsels of edible food washed down with the last glass of drinkable water and the last piece of habitable land. But hey, our stock portfolio will look fantastic. Future's not so great. All those futures, betting on no future whatsoever, may have finally cashed in. But, jeez, uh, the, just the real future? Not so good after all. That's what Fabian argues in The Mega Machine. Uh, uh, machine. Of our own creation Driven by capitalism and the market To make profits at whatever cost Even if that cost is our own planet Our own lives We spoke with Fabian back on September 29th And you can find our interview with him right now At thisishell.com By searching on the word mega machine That makes in no particular order The fourth title on our annual list Of our favorite books to be featured In interviews with their authors Here on This Is Hell in 2020. The End of the Mega Machine, A Brief History of a Failing Civilization by Fabian Scheidler. Tune in Monday as we announce the next book on the list and throughout all of the next two weeks as we will be revealing the eight remaining titles to make our favorite lists this year on the remaining episodes of This Is Hell in 2020. We got an answer to last week's question from Hell a little late last week, and we were not able to share it on air, but it's just too good to pass up. Patricia wrote to us with her answer to last week's question from Hell, which was, what are you trying really hard to not think about? What are you trying really hard to not think about? Patricia says, with a nod to past This Is Hell guest Dar Jamal, today is better than tomorrow. Which I am telling you, if we had received it on time, would have had a really good chance at being the winner of last week of The Question from Hell. So remember, we must have your answer to The Question from Hell by the end of our show on Thursday, which is 11 a.m. Chicago time. Also immediately after the show last week, we got an email from Erica at... Chuck at com. Dear Chuck, a few weeks ago I emailed you about listening to your podcast after I've moved to Kyrgyzstan. I wanted to write again and one, say how great the inter- uh, recent interviews have been the episode on islands and the interview with Dr. Annette Singh on Feral Atlas in particular were absolutely fascinating. They've given me a lot to think about. And two, thank you for the support that you have shown the magazine Hypocrite Reader. Since I first suggested some of our writers as guests, it really means a lot for our publication. To have your support. I don't know if you are still looking for pandemic reading suggestions, but I'd like to suggest two books by Jose Saramago: Blindness and its sequel, Seeing. Blindness is about an epidemic of blindness that spreads through a city, while Seeing is about how the after effects of the disease are felt in an election and how the police state clamps down on perceived dissent. So, timely stuff. I think it would be great if This Is Hell had some coverage of Central Asia and would like to suggest two potential guests. Mokira Suyarkulova and Georgi Mamedov. They are both Marxist scholars, active in feminist and LGBTQIA activist circles in Kyrgyzstan, and I think that they would have some really fascinating things to say about the state of women's rights and queer activism in Central Asia today. Best wishes to you and the rest of the This Is Hell team, Erica. First, Erica, I cannot tell you how much, how, just how elated, how happy Alex and I were. ...about having a listener in Kyrgyzstan. The last email we got from Erica, she mentioned walking around and discovering her new home while listening to This Is Hell... ...therefore associating buildings with different interviews we have featured on our show. Which, Erica, is so cool. Someone a world away from us, listening to us and associating our talks with architecture in Kyrgyzstan. It just it gives us chills. And yes, Erica, we will be getting in touch with you about guests to have on the show... ...to discuss what is happening when it comes to rights in Central Asia... If you want to send us your guest or topic suggestions or any thoughts you would like to share about the show or anything for that matter, please email us at chuck at and we'll likely read whatever you've written to us on air. Coming up, deep sea mining is the next cool technology that may be threatening the planet. We'll also have Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff Swats at the Zeitgeist Cannibals. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's Question from Hell, which is, what's the smart money play in 2021? The person with our favorite answer gets, well, your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. All you have to do is go to thisishell.com and click on support to see all of the This Is Hell stuff. You can leave your answer to this week's Question from Hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of today's show. Live from the Nightmare of Want, this is hell. If we want to cut our addiction to climate change causing natural resources in order to save the planet, we're going to need alternative sources to replace those fossil fuels. Those sources often mean batteries, and batteries mean rare metals like lithium, cobalt, Copper, nickel, but extracting those Metals is devastating the environment You are trying to save, and that Exploitation can lead to all sorts of abuses From unsafe working conditions To child labor, to even war So what if we could get all that Stuff without any of those consequences Sounds too hard to believe, right? Well, it just may be Here to help us understand the World of deep sea mining, and what it Means within the context of a Green New Deal, writer Rebecca McCarthy posted the Baffler Magazine article Article Deep Sea Rush with Valuable Metals on the Ocean Floor. Speculators are circling. Welcome to This Is Hell, Rebecca.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on.
2: Rebecca is a freelance writer based in Philadelphia whose work focuses on covering science and the environment. She's also an editorial assistant for Voice of Witness, a nonprofit that illuminates human rights crises through an acclaimed oral history book series. You can find out more about Rebecca at her website, RebeccaMcCarthy.net You write that Gerard Barron aims to be the first person in history to succeed in commercial deep sea mining, and he is growing frustrated with his detractors. You then quote him saying, if you read some of the commentary from some of these environmentalists, it's so sensational and it's all BS, you know, and he's, Baron belongs to a fledgling classy, right? Of new capitalists trying to build compassionate and eco-conscious corporations. How much do you think these corporations are being driven, being motivated by the idea of a green new deal?
1: Um, I think they are being motivated by the idea of a green new deal. Like, I don't think that, uh, I mean, I don't think anybody, including like oil executives, sits around telling themselves that they're evil or that they're doing something evil. Um, but I think they are. I think they see which way the wind is blowing, and they see that what's going to be profitable in the coming years is are things like wind power and uh, like the sort of rare metals game, especially in the United States, which is so far behind the rest of the world in terms of like um, extracting these rare metals.
2: Investors are currently looking for places to put their money. They don't actually know where to put their money. We can see that investors are trying to find investments just by looking at the stock market and seeing as how the Dow is now around 30,000. Are investors flocking to ideas like deep sea mining?
1: Um, Kind of. Kind of. It's like that's sort of the that's the dangerous thing about deep sea mining is that it's like, it might not be the worst idea in the world, but we really don't know what it's gonna do to the environment. And the ocean is this huge carbon sink. Like it's the biggest thing that we have working for us as far as like keeping emissions in check. Um, so if you mess that up, uh, the, the cascading effects could be pretty dire. Um, and there are investors in deep sea mining now, but like the more this moves forward, the more money there's going to be, so I think the people who are sort of um, trying to argue for a ten-year moratorium to study the effects are saying that like the money is gathering right now, but it's not really there. It's not there in force yet. So there aren't like deep sea lobbyists that are that that powerful yet, but they're they're getting there.
2: This Gerard Barron, he's behind a company called Deep Green that you uh, write about in this article. And you write, Barron's greatest success has been in marketing. In 2001, he started a company called... AdStream that has since expanded To 30 countries and helps brands like MasterCard, McDonald's, Nissan And Warner Brothers develop campaigns That will reach a global audience so you then quote an AdStream blog explaining When an ad is delivered outside Its country of origin, there's a risk That certain aspects of it may be Out of step with the cultural customs and Traditions of its new viewing audience Generally speaking, a broader message Crosses borders more clearly Is it just me, Rebecca? Or does that kind of sound like colonial propaganda these people are not g- going to like what we want to do so let's pretend it's something else claim we are here for a higher reason mm-hmm. or a cause does that sound like some kind of colonialist propaganda or am I just way too sensitive
1: no I mean uh I think a lot of Barron's argument for why he chose Nauru as a um as a sponsor state to um, move forward with this deep sea mining contract was that, you know, these, he says that these smaller Island nations have a voice and it really just doesn't get heard, but acting as if, um, you know, deep green stepping in to mine the ocean in their stead is given Nauru is giving Nauru a voice is kind of like um, like that itself is like definitely colonial. (laughs) And it's sort of like the more, you know, like small Island nation should be able to, destroy the world in the same way that large countries do. It's sort of like the more women prison guards argument. Um, Yeah. I mean, he, even when he talks about uh, Papua New Guinea and their failed deep sea mining um, endeavor, he says that, uh, that, you know, that was the, that was the pioneer that ended up with all the arrows in the back. It's just, I don't know. Yeah. It's not a, it's not the most inspiring rhetoric.
2: No, it's not at all. It wouldn't seem like it would actually attract investors, but I guess investors don't really seem that concerned about it. You write that the International Seabed Association, we'll get to what this agency is all about in a moment, has issued 30 exploration contracts in the area, which is this area for potential deep sea mining exploration, seven of which are held by private companies. Deep Green holds three of these contracts in the Clarion-Clipperton zone. They are being sponsored Because in order for you to do any kind of this deep sea mining, you have to have a national sponsor. They're sponsored by the Pacific nations of Tonga, Kiribati, and a tiny, desolate island republic called Nauru, as you were just mentioning, as I mentioned in the introduction. So why these countries? Deep Green, according to their uh, website, is based in very green Vancouver, British Columbia. Why do you need as a sponsor nations like Tonga, Kiribati, and Nauru?
1: Um. It's, uh, well, it's actually Kiribati, uh, but it is spelled Kiribati. Okay. Sorry, you. Um, But uh, the, yeah, I mean, I think it's because they these countries are like looking to um, make money and there is money in being a sponsoring state uh, of deep sea mining, although the attendant environmental risks are also huge. So there could be a lot of litigation around it in the future. Um, and I think he... I think Deep Green sort of just like went in and looked for, you know, where they saw opportunity or where they saw governments that they could um, manipulate. You know, Nauru in particular is um, is just sort of, uh, you know, a recent report has said they've sled towards authoritarianism. There's not really like the, the press is sort of... Um, is uh very restricted and they've they've made money off of housing refugees for australia for years since they the country was destroyed by phosphate mining um and it's you know a tiny tiny place so i think i think that's why it's just he saw places where he could like you know um, he could grease the wheels
2: The organization that oversees this is called, as I was saying, the International Seabed Authority. Uh, They oversee what is known as the Law of the Sea, just so people can understand how this is governed or not governed, if you will. Is, is, Is it a private sector group, an international governing body? What is the authority under which the Law of the Sea and the International Seabed Authority operates?
1: Uh, Yeah, it's, it's really weird. It's a strange organization. Um, it, uh, it's a UN body, but it kind of operates, uh, separately. So they have, um, their, their last session has been postponed because of COVID-19, but generally speaking, it's like all these countries come to, um, Uh, Jamaica, and they sort of, and there's one commission within the International Seabed Authority that's just sort of like a locked room, um, and that's called the Legal and Technical Commission, and they're the ones that make decisions about who does and does not get these contracts, and what happens with deep sea mining going forward, Um, and they, the ISA was founded um, to address international deep sea fishing, rivalries basically and also because the united states um was trying to was pretending to do deep sea mining in order to recover a russian sub um and they failed uh but they wanted to you know sort of like be able to do this uh recovery process in front of international observers so there was like a russian tanker watching them and they had to you know recover a couple of nodules to say that um to as the cover story but um But yeah, the ISA, it just doesn't really like the there's no environmental voice basically on the on the body that makes decisions about like whether mining is going forward. So they don't they've never denied an exploration contract and their main it's in their interest for deep sea mining to begin because I think they would profit from it. And this is like basically all they do at this point is issue deep sea mining contracts.
2: And you mentioned these polymetallic nodules. These are the ones that have the rare metals in them, including, uh, you know, nickel and copper that we are going to need if we're not going to have fossil fuels or uh, fossil resources as our fuel source in the future. And how these polymetallic nodules were first discovered in 1868 in the Kara Sea off the coast of western Siberia, but deep sea mining expeditions first captured worldwide attention in 1974 when the U.S. government, as you were saying, dispatched a large ship from Long Beach and California and what they claimed was a deep sea Mining expedition in reality it was a CIA Cover story for an attempt to recover A Soviet submarine known as Project Zorin. and you also write that the International Seabed Authority or ISA was founded on a conflict Of interest it is both a licensing And a regulatory body cha- charging with uh charged with uh, selling off the seabed as well as effective protection of the marine environment and prevention of damage to the flora and fauna you were just saying how they make money off of selling these licenses so from your estimation which role do they execute more effectively are they better at selling and licensing or protecting
1: um yeah i don't really think they're doing much protecting at this point um that does it just it seems to basically be a licensing operation. Um, and they. uh Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty clear where they're what direction they're headed.
2: And if governments do decide, uh, you know, because you have to have a national sponsor, you have to have a government sponsor in order to get one of these permits to do any kind of deep sea mining. If governments do decide that deep sea mining is in some way not beneficial to their citizens on the planet upon which their citizens happen to live. Can deep sea mining be halted, be stopped? Is there to some degree, because of this national participation, because the sponsorship program, is there to some degree democratic control over any deep sea mining? After all, you have to get a government to sponsor that mining. Mm hmm
1: yeah uh there is which is good that there is this centralized body that could prevent it but i mean you could you could mine within your own um waters basically that isn't really um the isa can't tell you not to do that you know like norway is thinking of doing that at the moment but it's sort of a it's a pr issue who is the first person to go and start deep sea mining um but yeah i think like a lot of the issue with um with deep-sea mining is that people do have a very visceral response when you say like we're thinking of mining the ocean um and they're not into it generally speaking but it's also like it's very hard to have oversight uh you know like over an operation that is four thousand um, meters underwater uh, and it's not nobody lives there specifically so it's not like you know you see a mountaintop blown off and like you see the mines and you know it's in your backyard and it's poisoning your groundwater it is still poisoning your water and it is still destroying the environment but if you don't see it it's harder to sort of get people riled up about it
2: so it's kind of like the people who are being detained on Nauru out of sight out of mind
1: Right.
2: Yeah. Jeez. So in in the law of the sea, one of the things that it embraces is the idea of a common heritage of mankind, that the oceans are a common heritage of mankind. And because of that reason, the United States did not want to sign on to the law of the sea. You write that under the royalty system that the United States opposes, the deep sea conservation coalition's Matt Gianni estimates that the payout would only amount to roughly one hundred thousand dollars a year for individual countries when it comes to this shared heritage and how they would contribute to each other. Most of the real money involved would go to the mining company, the sponsoring state, and most troublingly to the ISA. Still, when the Reagan administration came to power in 1981, they balked at the idea. You then quote Gianni explaining, they said, no, this is communism. This is socialism. We want none of this. So is fear and hatred toward communism keeping the United States from contributing to the potential destruction of the oceans is is the fear of communism finally good for something because it's keeping the United States from contributing to deep sea mining and the potential destruction of the oceans.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, that was pretty funny. Um, just because it is sort of like definitive proof that the United States is, uh, compared to like any other developed country, is like clearly a far right country so much so that it will, um, it will abandon the profit motive in a way to stay true to like, yeah, to avoid communism. Um, so yes, the United States is leading in the fight against deep sea mining by being so terrified of socialism that we refuse to partake in anything where we would have to share any of the profits.
2: And you mentioned about Nauru, how the place is pretty much uninhabitable. You write how, uh, the, um, Just over 12,500 remaining Naurans live clustered along the coast with few trees topside as Naurans refer to the area overtaken by the phosphate mines. Heat radiates off the island, clouds drift away, rain has grown scarcer, king tides flood the coast and make the single main road and artery that circles the island impassable, seawater contaminates the groundwater, dust from the dead mines, causes respiratory issues. Fish have been dying off as the coral reefs surrounding the island bleach. In 1993, Nauru received $75 million from Australia for environmental remediation, but little to nothing has actually been done. Well, can anything be done? Let's say that they did get money from Gerard Barron and Deep Green in order to give them that national sponsorship to do deep sea mining. Even if they did get that monetary, the monetary resources, can anything be done to save Nauru? You say that the phosphate mining was the worst thing that ever happened to Nauru and Nauru faced Uh, occupation after occupation after occupation by Imperial and colonial forces and was bombed by the Axis and the allies during world war two. So how is the phosphate industry, the worst thing that ever happened to Nauru?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's just like, it destroyed, it completely destroyed the country, which again is like a tiny, tiny Island, um, that you can, you know, circle in like an hour or something. Um, But it's, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, you know, relocating people is also sort of like another form of colonialism and forced relocation obviously does not have good connotations. But I think like a country like that and other countries that are just gonna be affected by climate change, you know, like low-lying island states or areas of the United States, like Louisiana, you have to give people the option to leave, but it's particularly complicated here because then you have to repatriate them and which country is going to take now ruins, probably Australia, but like Australia famously is not great at accepting, um, outsiders, I guess, uh, you know, nor is the United States, but I think it's just like, you can't, yeah, they, there could be some sort of environmental remediation, but then, then what, then what do you do? Then there's this like whole, then that's Backed by deep sea mining, and then you still have like rising seas, you still have, you know, um, typhoons increasing, and it's just like it's not, it's not really a sustainable place to live at this point. But uh, offering them money through deep sea mining is not going to solve that. You know, it's like you have to offer people, you have to give people options.
2: And getting refugees from Nauru to go to Australia would be incredibly ironic because Australia has been diverting asylum seekers trying to get to uh, Australia for a long time now, for over 10 years now. And uh, so refugees are just diverted off to a desolate island so nobody has to worry about that kind of situation within Australia, which is really sad and disturbing. You write during a period in the 1960s and 1970s, Nauru's... Per capita income was among the highest In the world That money came and went quickly though And you describe how some of that Wealth was actually lost in the Nation investing in a musical But how, how much can you blame Nauru itself for its situation that it finds itself in today? Did they succeed? Was that short-lived success due to phosphates? Did Nauru temporarily get rich? Did they at any point benefit by destroying its environment and therefore its future?
1: Uh, They did, yeah. But I mean, I think um, obviously, you know, government corruption played a large part in it, and the people who were in charge knew what was going to happen, um, but they weren't they weren't concerned because they were going to be, I think they saw themselves as being out of power by then. And um, the, they wouldn't have to deal with the ramifications, but yeah, they did. But at a certain point, I mean, once the phosphate mining has gone as far as like Britain and Australia took it, you know, like what were they supposed to do? Like there wasn't I I don't know. You can't really blame them for continuing to just run down the phosphate resources because There weren't there wasn't a better option, honestly, although it was like, yes, the people in charge should have handled that better. But like it was always going to run out. That's the problem with uh, with non-renewable resources sort of inherently.
2: With non-renewable resources, that's the thing about these. Nodules, which you write, uh, technically the nodules are a renewable resource, but they take an incomprehensible amount of time to form. Ocean currents carry dissolved metals across the abyssal zone, the bottom zone of the ocean, until they collect... Around a nucleus, a shark's tooth, for example, or a fragment of whalebone, and coagulate in concentric circles. Dense black rock slowly begins to appear. The nodules grow only a few centimeters every million years, and no one is to- totally sure how they remain perched atop the seabed, unobscured by falling sediment, which accretes much faster. Geologists suspect it has to do with the feeding patterns of starfish. So are they a finite resource or is there enough that it could fulfill demands for centuries until we figure out yet another fuel source?
1: Um, I mean, they, it, there, it's estimated that there are a lot of them. We don't know for sure how many of these things there are down there. Um, and the nodules, um, that's, that's only like one type of deep sea mining. So the other kind is you sort of dig up these, um, crusts that are full of like cobalt and lithium and all these other rare metals but that is obviously a lot more invasive and I think the appeal of the nodules is that it's just like it seems like you're just scooping rocks off the seafloor and it's no big deal but even the fact just even if you don't know anything about science or like very your you know scientific knowledge is very minimal like the fact that we can see these things at all is proof that something that they are involved in um some sort of like you know, a uh, food chain, basically, because something is clearing them off, uh, whether it's starfish or like other sort of like bacteria or whatever is going on down there. Um, because it just, it is sort of magical that, you know, they just sit there on top of the ocean floor after taking 4 million years to form. Um, so maybe, yeah, maybe they could support us for centuries, but it's like pretty unlikely that, you know, if you dig up everything, across the seafloor for centuries, that like that would not um, sort of cancel out the benefits of these of, you know, obtaining these rare metals.
2: And you point out that polymetallic nodules represent only one kind of deep sea mining, cobalt rich ferromanganese uh, crust line seamounts and ocean ridges, and polymetallic sulfides surround chimney-like hydrothermal vents called black smokers. But nodule mining is unique because it appears to be the least invasive form of extraction. One simply descends into the depths of the seas and scoops the things up. Of course, it's not really as simple as plucking something off the ocean floor. Much of the available research on deep-sea ecosystems has come to light as a result of deep-sea mining companies who have to perform due diligence before mining begins is there that kind of due diligence when it comes to the law of the sea and the international uh, seabed association do they insist on having any due diligence when it comes to what the environmental impact might be of sea mining
1: yes definitely they do so these all these studies are um are sort of happening at their behest but uh it's not clear how they're going to weight them basically like whether that is enough to prevent deep sea mining because at this point it is pretty clear that we there should be a ten year moratorium because like more and more, um, you know, initially everyone assumed that there was nothing going on down there that the deep sea was just like this dead zone, but um, you know, the other day they like you know there are like a lot of eels that are um, that live down there. There are all kinds of like strange fish. There's you know there's just like an entire ecosystem essentially that we were unaware of. And uh, increasingly the research is showing that like half of the species that live down there depend on the nodules for survival. Um, So the ISA is like taking that into account but they don't seem to be weighting it as much as they should be.
2: You mentioned that there are some nations That are not really happy About the fact that uh, People like Gerard Barron and Deep Green are trying To make it, get rid of this idea of a 10-year moratorium so they can study the effects Of deep sea mining and trying to push it Forward so they can be doing deep sea mining Within only a two-year period of time You write scientists and environmental activists Have called for a 10-year moratorium on all deep Sea mining to study its potential impacts As well as for reform of the International Seabed Association They've been uh, joined by the European Parliament Deep sea fishing organizations and prime ministers of Fiji, Vanuatu, and Papua New Guinea. Why those countries? What do they fear about deep sea mining? Because those all sound like countries that are very concerned about sea level rises.
1: Um. Yeah. Definitely. And but I think they they have you know this isn't like their first rodeo, especially for like Papua New Guinea, um, where. Uh. Jared Brand was an early investor in another company called Nautilus that was trying to do deep sea mining within Papua New Guinea's sovereign waters. Um, and there was a big pushback from uh the locals there, and they sort of organized with the PNG Council of Churches, which is very influential, and they managed to stop it. Um, and definitely like turn investors against the project as well, which was a big um, a big win. But I think they just, you know, all of these countries understand that it's not going to be the easy fix that it seems to be.
2: You say that when you asked Gerard Baron if he is planning on triggering the two-year rule in order to make it so there is no 10-year moratorium, he demurs saying, well, it's not for us to trigger. It would be for the member state to trigger, he says. Do I think a drop-dead date would be useful for the development of this industry? Yes, I do. And he thinks that drop-dead date, which is a horrible term to use, would be in two years. Does Deep Green have so much power over Nauru or is that you know Nauru is so desperate that it will do whatever deep green and Baron ask does it do these kind of companies have so much power over these really desperate nations that they can do whatever they you know the country like Nauru will just do whatever Baron asks
1: uh maybe I mean I guess we're gonna find out but <laughs> I uh, I think like yes on one hand I also think like Baron is um, you know, he's, he's convincing. And I think he has, he has like an argument where he sort of paints deep green as this like, white knight of decarbonization. And uh, I can see him, you know, um, presenting this to Nauru as something that would be beneficial, actually, where they would like be taking part in something that was going to like, save the world rather than simply, you know, housing refugees. It's not like, you know, Nauru's past sources of income have already been kind of like, horrific in a way that's very in your face, you know, like these, um, the refugee camps there are, uh, notoriously brutal and like children are like committing suicide. A man lit himself on fire in 2016. Um, so for Naroon's who have seen that, you know, deep sea mining might seem like, I can see why that would seem like a better option.
2: You also mentioned John Childs, a professor at Lancaster University who researches extractive industries, who went out to Papua New Guinea in 2016 as part of his research into deep sea mining. Childs tells you how he interviewed Mike Johnson, who was the CEO of Nautilus at the time, the company that Barron was working with. Not someone you'd necessarily want to take home and meet your mom, he says. He was saying, you know, I can't understand. You know, he's mentioning Barron here. Barron was saying, I can't understand why these guys aren't happy. We're building them toilets. I've seen their toilets. Conditions. They're dreadful. And then Childs goes on to say it was like the worst kind of stereotypical old school colonial attitude. Pretty grim stuff. They had this headquarters, which was not very big. It was at the back of a shopping center in Brisbane, Australia. Honestly, it was all smoke and mirrors as far as I was concerned. You have this big public image of Nautilus as the world's leading deep sea mining firm, but it was Wizard of Oz Oz stuff. You get in there and there's not very much going on. So. Rebecca, you've been looking into this for a while. Is deep sea mining potentially just a scam, a con, a grift?
1: I mean, I think if you look at any corporation, uh that like it sort of start, it sort of starts that way, you know, like anything where they're trying to tell you that they um they're sort of trying to present an all-powerful presence, you know, most things are really just run out of the back of a uh shopping mall in Brisbane metaphorically at least <laughs> um, but I yeah I don't I don't think it's a scam I think there's like a very there's a high chance that it could happen at some point um, or that we might we might need it to happen but it's just like the the way it's moving forward right now definitely is a scam um, like the rush to start it is just is the like completely unnecessary I mean Baron says you know at one point he was like, you know, if we have a 10 year moratorium, like who would be the loser there? Like the planet would be, but he had just mentioned that his investors would back out. So it's clearly just like, um, even if deep sea mining doesn't turn out to be like the, you know, catastrophic industry that we think it might be. Um, the reason he doesn't want it delayed is because it's just a question of money basically.
2: And I really like how you point out, uh, The importance of deep sea mining when it comes to, you know, considering concepts like the Green New Deal. You write a totally ethical green transition remains elusive when one man's solar firm is another man's cobalt tailing pond and there will be a seamy underbelly to any Green New Deal we manage to win. How can any Green New Deal be protected from cobalt tailings ponds or deep sea mining. And what explains to you the green new deals vulnerability to these kinds of ideas like lithium mining that are incredibly destructive to the planet, even though it's still considered part of a green new deal.
1: Yeah. I mean, like, I, I think it's like important to say that like we, we do need a green new deal (laughs) objectively. So like, even though it is going to create its own kind of destructive forces, it's still you know you don't want to do false equivalency and like pretend that we're better off just staying where we are um but i think that like obviously like you have to change the whole economic system if you want to like any future where we solve climate change requires like treating people differently and you know you have to open up a lithium mine somewhere you have to um you have to give, you know. That's why the housing part of a Green New Deal, I think, is so important, like affordable housing and like the jobs program, where cities are going to have to move, not just because of these mines, but because of sea level rise. And um, in order to do that, you need to you need to make that really easy for people and make that appealing. Um, but but yeah, I think that like, you know, in in the U.S. at least, like because Anything that you can pass here is um, inevitably going to be uh, sort of disappointing on some level, because again, like the United States compared to other developed nations is so far to the right. Um, I think it's like you sort of just have to keep your eye on like who's getting hurt, even by like the thing that you want to happen.
2: I've got one last question for you, Rebecca. We have been speaking with writer Rebecca McCarthy, who posted the Baffler magazine article, Deep Sea Rush with valuable metals on the ocean floor. Speculators are circling. You can find out more about Rebecca at our website, RebeccaMcCarthy.net. One last question for you, Rebecca, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question... From hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. You write, it would be a mistake to dismiss deep sea mining out of hand. Decarbonization is often presented as a choice between technological innovation and degrowth, when realistically we are probably going to need both. Corporations and the wealthy account for the bulk of global emissions, but the way most of the developed world lives is so clearly unsustainable that it's difficult to defend. Personal sacrifice doesn't sell well but things are going to get grosser before they get better have you seen any signs that we are increasing increasingly accepting the understanding that yes tomorrow will be worse
1: um <laughs> no <laughs> not really uh no i mean it, it's really hard to sell people on that too um but yeah, I mean, I, I guess, yeah, on some level, people understand that there's going to be some level of personal sacrifice involved. But uh, but yeah, I don't think there's a ton of like public awareness of that.
2: So all we yeah. need to do is have find a good marketing person like Jared, uh, Gerard Barron to tell us right. uh, how to market the idea to people that... <laughs> tomorrow will be worse. Rebecca, thank you so much for being on the show. This is really a fascinating article, and everybody should go check it out. Uh, Even though we've been talking about it for about 35 minutes, we just talked about the very surface of this, and there's so much more to it. Rebecca, I can't thank you enough for being on the show this week. Find out more about Rebecca at our website, RebeccaMcCarthy.net. Thanks so
1: much for having me again.
2: Thank you. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell, and if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to Tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com/slash This Is Hell every Friday at 10 a.m. Live Chicago time. We do a Patreon podcast at Patreon.com/slash ThisIsHell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon and get exclusive ac- access to our weekly Patreon podcast. This week on Patreon, we are continuing our series of playing interviews we did shortly after Barack Obama became president to remember what people were saying and thinking the last time a member of the Democratic Party became president of the United States, and last time we were promised, then told that Guantanamo would be closed as a prison. For the war on terror suspects But That never happened Now a dozen years later After we watched a dozen years after we watch Obama signing documents Claiming to close Guantanamo There is no word from his vice president The incoming president Suggesting if he too will Close Guantanamo So tomorrow on Patreon At patreon.com slash hell, We are playing our January 31st 2009 interview From just 11 days into Obama's first term in office with University of Chicago law scholar Aziz Hook, who had just posted an article at the Brennan Center for Justices website titled Obama's Minimalist Approach to Guantanamo, wherein Aziz argues that Obama's executive order on closing Guantanamo Bay still doesn't go far enough toward addressing the worst of the Bush administration's moral and legal quagmires. And it didn't go far enough, and we still have Guantanamo, where humans have been rotting for nearly 20 years, prisoners in an undeclared global war on an idea. And there was never any justice for the Bush administration, never held accountable for approving of torture and lying us into war. Also on tomorrow's Patreon podcast, last week I declared war not only on Christmas because that Penny Annie half ass war is for pikers, but on all of the holidays as they're all a form of denialism from the reality of our very frightening world and are a distraction from that miserable reality that allows our daily nightmare of things like climate change and pandemics to continue unchecked. That said, I have news from the front lines of that war and it appears when it comes to my declaration of war on all holidays, which I announced on Patreon last week, it appears negotiations are underway and there are rumors of peace talks, but you can only hear that hopeful news of a truce in the war on holidays and our 2009 interview with Aziz Hook on Obama not closing Guantanamo by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreoncom This Is Hell. In a few minutes, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff Swatz at the Zeitgeist Cannibals producing this week's show is Alex Jerry Alex can you please remind our listeners what is this week's question from Helen? tell us how they are responding
0: yeah, this week's question from hell is what is the smart money play in 2021 and before that I just wanted to say uh, earlier uh, yesterday you mentioned on the show how hard it was for you to read Marxist Capital and mm-hmm. I just wanted to let people know uh, that David Harvey, the writer, has a lecture series called Reading Capital to help all those people who find capital boring and impenetrable. It's free and it's available in video or audio form.
2: So did David Harvey's podcast help you read capital?
0: Oh, I don't know, man. That podcast is boring and impenetrable.
2: <laughs> See, that's what I would figure. I, You know, we have had a lot of people suggest that we have David Harvey on the show. I have listened to him talk. And he's an order of the level of Ralph Nader, if you know what I'm saying.
0: Uh, you can just read Communist Manifesto and be like, okay, yeah, I get this. I'm, I'm on board, and then you don't have to read any more. Okay.
2: I guess. I, I just, every time somebody suggests, it's a huge name, right? And that's the kind of thing that we've done in the past. Oh, here's a huge name, Ralph Nader. We'll get him on the show. And then we get him on the show, A, Boar, B, Nobody listened. It didn't lead to anybody, any new subscribers on Patreon. It didn't lead to a whole bunch of shares. It didn't lead to all of a sudden we were the spotlight of all these lefty podcast fans. Man, that stuff never happened. So, yeah, David Harvey,
3: screw that.
0: <laughs> what is the smart money play for 2021? Gorilla G says, my new drone delivery homebrew startup. <laughs> Uh, no Nowak Wolf says, buy Antifa BLM XR protesters like Soros. Rich H says, Ice Cube futures
2: uh,
0: via email, DM, Twitter, etc., etc., etc. Neil C says, plastics. Yes, despite climate disaster, it's still plastics. Oh, God. Flying Needle says, get a job, you effing hippie. <laughs> Only joking. Buy Dogecoin every time Grimes dumps Elon Musk and then sell
2: every time he farts. You can look up all, all those words on... Uh I
0: think it's a Simpsons reference. Uh, Adam B. says, in your ancient Ashkenazi pool, it's got to be Kissinger to outlast Ellsberg <laughs> and Chomsky since this is hell. But if that's not quite macabre enough for you, just stick to more conventional investments like Raytheon. That's pretty fantastic. I'm just sure Kissinger, Ellsberg, and Chomsky are all voting for the same person in my book, So uh, <laughs> done with those dudes. Brian D. says, admitting that money is imaginary and simply declaring you have more. Hypocrite Reader says, commodify your dissent. Or trying, have a great reader. And finally, Martin F. says, Chuck will miss several days of work due to intestinal or inner ear issues. I have bet my entire life savings on this, so don't disappoint me.
2: Or it might be my sinuses. I haven't really figured it out yet, and I'm going to try to figure it out soon because I still can't go see my doctor, and I really need to badly, especially after seeing that report last night of how— uh, there is a huge increase in the number of deaths from last year, but they don't know how many of those are actually attributed to the pandemic. A lot of them just may be people who didn't go to the hospital because they didn't want to see their doctor because they were afraid of getting the virus. Yeesh. Anyway, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to alex at alex at But we must have your answer by the end of today's show. by The time that the moment of truth is over, and it's time for the moment of truth right now. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what?
3: warmed over zeitgeist welcome to the moment of truth the thirst that is the drink you know what everyone i know has watched the queen's gambit some have enjoyed it some have not i watched the show and loved it i've loved the work of the late walter tevis who wrote the novel some time ago before he died ever since i read his short stories the if of oof and the big bounce i knew He wrote the novel The Man Who Fell to Earth and was reminded that he also wrote the novels The Hustler and The Color of Money when I read about him, his lousy upbringing, his love of chess and pool, and how he came to write the novel in an informative piece that was part of the press inspired by the TV show. And that was just fine. Then The New Yorker comes out with yet another article about how good the show is. And I just snap out of nowhere, out of a clear blue sky, because I feel a surge of rage that at this point of the game, more articles are coming out. And it seems to me just cashing in on something popular that a magazine or other cultural chatter venue had no part in. Oh, everyone loves this. My octopus teacher, pork rinds, samurai movies, Spider-Man wokeness, coffee with butter in it, David Hockney's revelations about Vermeer, Neapolitan pizza... Here's a new angle on the flavor of the month, I'll relate it to something from my childhood. Something about how perfectly this period piece, this swatch of inexplicably popular fabric, this recently romanticized heritage breed of guinea pig, reflects a trope conspicuous in our current situation. Maybe I can ride their coattails. Then Terry Gross, then NYT, then New York Magazine, then Deadspin, Hollywood Reporter, Butt-feed, scroll-happy, spew-rag, raw-doggery. Then some podcasts. Probably Mark Maron, if they're lucky. Is anyone else sick of this cannibalistic ritual? Because if it's just me, I'll still whine about it, but I might feel a bit embarrassed. Just a bit. Maybe. Probably not, though. Society of regurgitation makes me puke. I mean, there's just... Too much for me to get annoyed about these days. You know, it's getting hard to focus. A lot of you listeners might be too young to remember when I used to do these segments every week, live during four-hour This Is Hell Saturday mornings from the WNUR studio, and I used to slam NPR now and then for their various misdeeds, mispronunciations, lapses of judgment, and just plain propaganda. And I once went off on Terry Gross for spotlighting her favorite sitcom at the time, Just Shoot Me. Because, what, the public is paying you to invite an actor from a nationally advertised commercial TV show? So you're, what, just a more Whole Foods version of The Tonight Show? I just remembered when Ira Glass said maybe public radio was ready to take its training wheels off and join the capitalist marketplace and clenched my teeth so hard one of my molars chipped. Recently, everyone's all agog over my octopus teacher. It's on Netflix. It's by and about a South African, highly employable, elite wildlife photographer with the means to take time off to clear his head by strolling over to the nearby Cape of Storms every day and snorkeling around in a secluded kelp forest poking mollusks. There he meets the titular octopus and learns so many beautiful life lessons. I enjoyed it. I like cephalopods, and this is a pretty damn cool one. But he could have titled it The Octopus Teacher. But no, it's My Octopus Teacher. And to me it makes a big difference. The first person singular possessive rather than the definite article. Because in the end it's all about him. But not just him, it's him and his lifestyle and accomplishments and efforts at goodness and protecting the kelp forest. The latter all worthy endeavors, but it's the possessive. It's the My part. What I'm whining and complaining about is this territorial marking. It's like a male cat spraying his odor everywhere. Werner Herzog must be the most marked man alive. His trousers will never lose their ammonia stench. There's often a blurry line between actually contributing to the cultural discourse and just peeing on it. Sometimes these venues, these organs of the zeitgeist, provide a valuable service. Introducing us to phenomena and ways of consideration we're unfamiliar with. But some are cultural cannibals, like P.T. Barnum showing off his freaks. Some are like museums showing off their captive hot and Hottentot Venus. They can be highbrow, lowbrow, middlebrow, or nobrow. I put my imprimatur, my spray, my scent, my musk on this cultural thing, this already publicized to death cultural phenomenon on whose bandwagon I wish to ride. I, me, mine, all through the day, all through the night. I, me, mine, I, me, mine, I, me, mine. Granted, this is merely one among many of the myriad irritations by which one may be irked in these multifariously irksome times. (laughs) It's a smorgasbord out there. This, though, presents itself as a telling symptom of our sixth society of acquisitiveness, consumption, and ownership. It's the culture eating itself, regurgitating, and eating its own vomit like a bored dog. Duplicitously. It presents this puke and poop-eating as vibrance, vitality, joie de vivre. Look how touched I am by the my-octopus-teacher-man. I celebrate him, thus I share in his qualities. I, too, am curious about nature, and you can probably surmise that I inhabit my own private octopus's garden, another beetle's reference, collect them all, my own little kelp forest, somewhere in my wonderful life, where I touch and am touched by creation and destruction and the boundless beauty and sadness of the world. It all makes me want to hurl. I'll barf it from the mountaintop. It's free, you leeches, you parasites of popularity. Come and get it. You don't even have to pay me, culture of cannibalism and scavenging, of carrion eating and blood sucking. This is my body. This is my blood. Have at it, you skeeters and hyenas. Anyway. That's my feeling these days. How about you? This has been the moment of truth. Good day.
2: Have you ever seen (laughs) that non-porn Tom Cruise vehicle Jack Reacher? (laughs) No. Well, you shouldn't. But if you can find the scenes online where Werner Herzog is playing the evil man... It's worth the price of admission. It's some of the most entertaining acting I've seen since David Bowie was playing Andy Warhol in Basquiat. It is incredibly entertaining. I don't know if it's supposed to be good acting. I don't know if he was having fun at the director's expense. But I'm telling you, Werner Herzog in that horrible, non-porn Tom Cruise vehicle, Jack Reacher is...
3: Jack Reacher round? What is it called? Jack Reacher? No,
2: Jack Reacher. And there's Jack Reacher 2, which is really not worth the price I of admission know.
3: either too, I know her.
2: <laughs> all right jeffy wait a minute yes sir
3: it's not it's not a band
2: oh <laughs> the, the zeitgeist cannibals
3: yeah the zeitgeist you know, it's a great idea for a band <laughs> but it's not a band damn it
2: somebody out yeah. there form the band zeitgeist cannibals send us some music we'll play it on the
3: air Yeah, i kind of can't believe it wasn't a band in the in the Late
2: 70s. Yeah, that kind of sounds early 80s, late 70s. All right, Jeffy. Yeah. Until next time. What? Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Alex, what is this week's question from Hell, and how are our listeners responding?
0: This week's question from Hell is, what's a smart money play in 2021? I had to look up what smart money play meant because I have no idea about money at all. But uh, that's the question right? <laughs> So uh, that was it. Uh, We got all of them in. So let me F five. Just see if anyone else. uh, No, that's it.
2: Uh, The answers I liked most were Martin saying, Chuck, will miss several days of work due to intestinal or inner ear issues. I've bet my entire life savings on this. So don't disappoint me. I think I'm going to because it might end up being a sinus condition. And I apologize for you losing your smart money already, Martin. Again, what's the smart money play in 2021? Fabio saying COVID-21. That's a really good answer. Adam saying a commodified momentary. Reprieves from soul-crushing existential despair Also pudding Kurt saying funeral homes and opiate producers Yikes And Garrett, who is the first person to respond Saying, investing in Caterpillar Caterpillar, the trucking company For all the mass grave digging That makes this week's winner Garrett, the first person to respond To the question from hell this week Saying, that the smart money play for 2021 is investing in Caterpillar Here, Illinois' own, Peoria, Illinois' own Caterpillar For all the mass grave digging You have won your choice of our swag at Hell.com When you click on support, Garrett Congratulations, now all you have to do is send us your mailing address And we will tell you, or we'll send you whatever piece of merchandise you would like my answer to this week's Question from Hell, what's the smart money play in 2021? Well, I hope it's not deep-sea mining. I'm going to say cotton balls, alcohol, syringes, and Band-Aids and suckers for little kids who are not going to like 2021 whatsoever. Thanks to everyone for sending us your answers to this week's Question from Hell, and thanks, special thanks to those of you who have gone to thisishell.com just overnight and clicked on support to show your support for This Is Hell. Thanks to Sharon, Carol Ann, and Tynan for supporting. This is how we truly appreciate it. Remember we are completely listener supported. So without you, we got nothing again. Thanks Sharon, Carol Ann and Tynan for going to this is hell.com and clicking on support and showing your support for completely listener supported. This is Hell. Alex who's on Monday's show. Uh, so on Monday,
0: Shivani Shidi will be on to talk about her Eflux article, housing the poor for a healthy planet and healthy nation, which is all about population control. Oh, nice. Uh, Then also Tuesday, uh, Frank Snowden will be on, historian Frank Snowden will be on to talk about his book Epidemics and Society from the Black Death to the Present.
2: Awesome. That sounds like fun.
0: Uh, Still working on Wednesday and Thursday. I would love to hear from one of the 250 million people on strike in India. (laughs) Uh, So we're still working on those. If you have suggestions for either what is, uh, if you've found writing you like on either India or uh, what's happening right now in Peru, those are two things we're both looking for for Wednesday Thursday next
2: week so uh hit me up alex at thisiscell.com if you got any good ideas do you know if we're gonna have the author from fem- feminisms back on
0: oh yes uh, so if you were waiting for uh was that Tuesday last uh this week Tuesday yeah. when we had to cancel because uh Chuck got sick Lucy DeLapp to talk about fen- feminisms a global history she's gonna be on the show on Wednesday the 17th of December
2: oh so for a week from Wednesday yep, yep awesome yep. uh I'll, one last thing I gotta say it is time to announce this week's this month's, this year's, best listener, the listener of the week, the listener of the month, the listener of the year, we are going to announce right now, and it is Jack W. Why Jack W? Because Jack W. took This Is Hell to the monolith in Utah. We have shared the images online. If you would like to see Jack W. taking This Is Hell to the monolith in utah just a little bit late because the monolith had disappeared go to at h2oetry that's the letter h the number two oetry and check out jack w's image of him taking this is hell to the monolith in utah We start every week's live streaming shows here at ThisIsHell.com with Alex revealing this week's Hangover Cure. So again, Jack W., Listener of the Year. This week's Hangover Cure is Take a Breather, which is the most poorly worded cure we have ever suggested here on This Is Hell, and we apologize. However, it was a cure we found at Men's Health Magazine's website. We wanted to take the opportunity to remind everyone that if the word men is in the title of a magazine... It sucks. Thanks to all of this week's guests, including editor and correspondent Brian Mir, who you can find his work at Telesur English's news program from the South, as well as at Brazil Wire. Thanks to yesterday's guest, International Land Coalition member, development economist and policy analyst. Ward Ansu, who is one of the authors of Uneven Ground, Land Inequality at the Heart of Unequal Societies, which you can find at landcoalition.org. And finally, thanks to today's guest, Rebecca McCarthy, who posted the Baffler magazine article, Deep Sea Rush, with valuable Metals on the ocean floor. Speculators are circling. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon when we will be playing our January 2009 interview with legal scholar Aziz Hook on his writing that explained... How Obama's so-called closing of Guantanamo did not go far enough And apparently did not as Guantanamo remains open 12 years later And it appears there may be an armistice in my war On not only Christmas, but all of the holidays There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you On this week's set of shows And that's by sitting down in the lotus position Turning your palms towards the sky Focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead And saying these simple words Everybody's stupid My demon is on my butt. Uh. My
3: demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.